Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Last Baby" by Ken W. Purdy. First published in Cosmopolitan, November 1953. I'd uh, thought I'd heard the name Purdy around. Um, but uh, thinking about it, I think there's a Canadian author uh, and poet named P- Purdy, and that's probably who I was thinking of. But the guy does have a w- ISFDB entry, and uh, so I thought, oh, maybe this is a science fiction story, especially with that title, The Last Baby. <laughs> so I I said, I'll read this. Start reading this story. And then I started reading it, and I, th- I thought, oh, my God, I think this is a science fiction story about a really weird topic. And now the more I look at it, the less I think that that's true. Um, (laughs) However, I can't disprove it. (laughs) So given that it's published in a non-SF magazine, Cosmopolitan, um, I think what I said is, I think I'm reading this wrong, Eric. But uh, just, you know, not necessarily do a show on this, but would you uh, look at this story and tell me what you think? Am I crazy? Um, so, um, should, do you think we should let the listener play this guessing game as well? Or do you want to tip your hand and tell me what the answer is first? (laughs) Well, let me say that there are no aliens, spaceships, monsters, or, um, evil things escape from the lab, mm-hmm. nor is this set in an impossible or fantastic future past or sideways. In that sense, this is not a science fiction story. There are other senses in which maybe it is a science fiction story. Mm. But I think we should let the, uh, the listener think about that only a little bit. Uh, I don't want to make a pre, I don't want that to be the focal uh, question in the reader's mind mm-hmm. because the story really um, as as most science fiction stories uh, they're not about the genre of science fiction that's right they're about something else and mm-hmm. this story whether or not it's science fiction is about something else and that frankly is a little hard to pin down too in my opinion indeed I, I agree so it's an interesting story whether it's science fiction or not um, but what makes it interesting is kind of slippery. Yes. So I should say, by the way, mm-hmm. and this is a this is a consequence of my being older than you and perhaps more lascivious. Um, I knew Ken Purdy's name uh, when you first suggested this to me. I you said, "Have you heard of him?" And I said, "Didn't he write for Playboy?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. And indeed, uh, he he did a lot for Playboy well, and many yeah. other things. Do you want to give a little bit about who the guy is? Sure, sure. The Cosmo readers of the day wouldn't have known or cared. Sure. He was was born in uh, 1913. He died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in 1972. Um, He was uh, a a writer and an editor. He actually edited um, a number of very high-end magazines, Parade, Car and Driver, which is still around. Argosy and uh, True magazines in the 40s and the 50s. He he uh, was a reporter during World War II um, for a magazine called Victory, which I think was, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was like a sort of like a Stars and Stripes style um, 
domestic or foreign uh, service uh, service magazine, basically how we're winning the war sort of magazine. Um, and then he um, he sort of specialized in writing about uh, cars. <laughs> More importantly, writing about racing. Um, he was uh, friends and a col- uh, I guess colleague's not the right word for it, with a famous uh, yeah. British race car driver named uh, Sterling Moss. Um, and uh, it's kind of funny because uh, knowing that he was a car guy, you know that 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 that's mostly what he's writing for Playboy is sort of reviews of cars and and interviews with uh, with um, you know famous drivers and that sort of thing. He he did write fiction as well, and being an editor, you know, he knows what people want. But he never edited Cosmo, and that's where this story shows up. So it's right in the middle of his writing career he did write science fiction just not a heck of a lot of it you know for maybe six stories something like that mm-hmm. um but yeah he's not known as a science fiction writer but cosmopolitan ran science fiction so i i i figured maybe this is in my bailiwick and yet i still have these lingering questions um and i i always uh, you know classifications can be kind of slippery because um, I really love Philip K. Dick, but he isn't really interested in science or technology exactly. He's more interested in philosophy, and and that still qualifies to me him as a science fiction writer, even though he's not really interested in the technological change as much as sociological and psychological and philosophical change. So uh, I, that's about all I know about uh, Ken Purdy. Uh-huh. All right. I think that's ample. Mm-hmm. So you, would you like me to read this? I would it's love not- you to read this. It's pretty short. Uh, it's got some very uh, good illustrations, and they are <laughs> with that title. It and the uh, yeah, I think everybody should have a look at the pictures as well because it, it, it really gives you a, a kind of interesting view. Yes, the last baby. <clears throat> by Ken W. Purdy. Jack Crosby walked down the long hospital corridor toward the door. He was very tired, and that was all he could think about. He was tired right down to the floor. He let the hospital door sigh quietly shut behind him. It was five o'clock, and the sky over the woods across the town was beginning to pink. He could hear a car coming up the hill. That would be the old man. The old man was one of those people you could count on. Young Crosby grinned in spite of himself as the beat-up car shuddered to a stop at the hospital steps. The old man had a heavy foot. He opened the door and got in. His father had a pipe going, and the car reeked with the pungent stuff he smoked. Let me be the first of the 500 who'll say it, the old man said, grinning. How does it feel to be a father? Jack shook his head. He didn't answer. Crosby Sr. looked at him for a minute, then shoved the car into gear. Let's go get some coffee, he said. You look like you could use it, and I know I could. You made good time coming up. I did that. I didn't. I did it that, didn't I? I kicked it right along, he grinned. I sure like to drive on empty roads. I opened the cutout and tromped down on the gas, and the old boiler came right along. Showed 70 once. There's a place on the next corner where that sign is. They drank their coffee and the old man ordered wheat cakes and sausage. 
You ought to eat something, Jack, he said solicitously. Keep your strength up. He spilled more sugar in his coffee and stirred it energetically. Since I retired, I eat more than ever, hunting and fishing all the time, way I do. Liable to sap a fellow's vitality. He drank noisily. I went out with old Martinson yesterday. He had his new dog along and he bragged about him all the way to Bell's Woods. So five minutes after we put him to work, he cut a rabbit trail and it took Marty an hour to catch him. Time he came back, I had two cocks and a hen. Can't think when I enjoyed myself more. Jack didn't smile. You haven't answered my question yet, you know, his father said. Remember, I asked you how you felt about it all. Jack smiled slowly. I didn't answer because I didn't know, he said. Of course, I was thinking mostly about Helen last night. I didn't think much about myself or even about the baby. Odd, it happened that way when everything had been so fine all along, the senior Crosby said. Everything was just the way it should be up till midnight. It happened at midnight and until two in the morning. It was 50-50 whether Helen would live or the baby either. Of course, they're both all right now, but it sure was close. Well, you ought to be happy about the whole thing, Jack, the old man said. You have a son. Say it over to yourself a couple of times. I have a son. Surprising what it will come to mean to you. Having a son is one of the happiest things that ever come a man's way. That's the thing. I don't feel happy about it. Now that it's over, now they're both out of danger and I should feel great about everything. Well, I I just don't. That's all. The old man waved his pipe impatiently. Oh, that'll pass, he said. You just wrought up some, that's all. You're still shocked by the bad time you had last night, almost losing Helen and all. Naturally, you wouldn't be yourself right away. Jack shook his head. No, it wasn't that. Sure, when they told me what had happened and how things might turn out, I was scared stiff. I wished to God we'd never decided to have a baby, but there was nothing I could do then, and it turned out all right anyway. Crosby Sr. put another match to his pipe. Look, son, he said, I wouldn't want this to come as a blow to you, but you aren't the first man to go through labor, and you aren't the first to feel let down afterward. You aren't even in the first billion. So relax. He looked around for the waiter. Where in blazes are those wheat cakes, he muttered. I'm sitting here starving to death. Ah, here they come. About time, too. The waiter set the heavy white dish before him, piled up with six big flapjacks and put the platter of sausage beside it. The old man sniffed ecstatically. Waiter, he said, bring another order of these more sausages, too, and two more cups of coffee. My son here wants some, too. No, thanks, Dad. I'm not hungry. Honest. You will be, the old man said. Go ahead, waiter. Bring another order. He doused syrup over his wheat cakes and reached for the butter. It's just come over me, Jack, he said, that I know what's gnawing at you. Like you say, it isn't the business last night. That's just in the ordinary way of things. What's got you down is this. You've been thinking that it's a hell of a world to bring a child into. You've been wondering if a man has the right to bring another baby into a world that's all fouled up with the atom bomb and the Russians and us making faces at each other and people shooting each other up in places you can't pronounce just like they always have, and everybody wondering when some big domed joker in a white coat will press the wrong button and blow the whole thing into a cinder. That's what's got you down now, isn't it? Jack Crosby nodded. I guess so, he said, something like that. I, I never thought I'd feel that way. I, 
I remember Shorty McDonald. He was on the Sarah with me, a good guy, too. Um, he used to talk like that. He was never going to have any kids. He said he said the human race should resign and let the insects take a crack at running the world. I wonder what they what he'd say now. The old man replied, he isn't around now. Jack told him he didn't quite make it back from a strike at Rabul. The old man sighed philosophically. Too bad, he said, too bad. He looked up. But you never felt that way, did you? Not me. I was all for getting back, marrying Helen and having five kids in a row. Sure. And now, just because a few long hairs have discovered that uranium or balonium or whatever makes more noise than TNT, you're ready to quit and resign from the human race? Jack Crosby shook his head feebly. It isn't just the damn atom bomb, he said. That's just part of it. Everything is loused up, but everything. Look around. Where does it look good? Looks good right here to me, the old man told him. Nothing looks better to me than two wheat cakes about ready to join four inside me. That can blow it. They can blow it up when ready. As far as I'm concerned, only I'll tell you something. And this is a real secret, Jack. They aren't going to blow it up. That joker in the white coat isn't going to press the wrong button and turn all this real estate into a burnt piece of toast. Jack Crosby grinned at his father. (laughs) Where'd you get your dope? He asked. Out of my head, the old man told him, where you ought to get yours. Don't mistake me now. I'm not saying the atom bomb is a firecracker, something to for boys to play with. I'm not saying that. I can read. I know what another war would be like, and I don't want any part of it, but I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for the first bomb. I got other things to do, birds to shoot for one and fish to catch and sky to look at and grandsons to see. He looked up. Here's our friend with your wheat cakes. Here, you can have the rest of my butter. You need a lot of butter. He watched his son eat for a bit. You know, Jack, he said, I was thinking you had a pretty fair time for 36 years, haven't you? Sure, I've got no kicks coming. Why? And you'd live, you'd live those 36 years again, wouldn't you? You'd just as soon go back over that ground. The first fish you caught, the time you snagged the, that pass in the Dartmouth game, your first girl, the first time you found out how good a good book can be, and all the rest of it, you wouldn't want anybody to take that away from you. I certainly wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't, and nobody has the right, including you. You haven't the right to take it away from anybody else. You see what I mean? I see what you mean, Jack said. I get it. Feel better now? Sure, I feel okay now. I I guess I was stretched out a little thin before. Wheat cakes taste all right? (laughs) Sure, they taste fine, just right. The fact that you were born on April 6th, 1917, the day we went into World War I, that doesn't spoil the taste any? Doesn't make it seem kind of futile to eat them? The old man was grinning now. Jack grinned back. Strange, he said, but it doesn't seem to have any effect on the way they taste. They're still good. The old man reached for the check. Finish them up then, he said, and let's go back to the hospital. I want to get a look at that kid myself. The end. The end. Okay. Um, Do you see where my initial confusion came from when I started reading this story? (laughs) Um, well, you went in wondering whether or not it was science fiction. So Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that you were spending a lot of time trying to think about whether or not it were science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but you know, you ask me if I can see where it comes from. Maybe you don't want me to explain my thoughts about that. No, uh, want- no, I'm I'm curious because uh, like obviously there's some stuff, um, you know, with the ants taking over and a couple lines like that. Um, they're thinking about World War Three, um, and then the title. That's what gave me the first hint that it was a science fiction story or might be a science fiction story. When I started reading it, I was investigating it because I, I want to read science fiction stories. Um, but uh, it's pretty much right in the first page, or the second the second page, um, where there, it, I just noticed like there's all these men talking about having babies, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm going to just, uh, I'll just read the, the lines that are like, to me, it's like, okay, I, I, th- I think I'm making a mistake here, but... Um, it says, uh, everything was just the way it should be up until midnight. It, hap- it happened just at midnight. And until 2 in the morning, it was 55-50, whether Helen would live or the baby either. Okay, so I'm pretty sure that means <laughs> that the wife was having a difficult labor, right? Yeah, um, I infer, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Of course, they're both all right now, but it sure was close. So she's at the hospital, is what I'm assuming. He, uh, the father's just come to pick him up at the hospital. He probably called and uh, said, uh, Dad, um, uh, Helen just had a baby, right? Uh, before the story started, and the father came out to, uh, you know, take him to breakfast or whatever. Or lunch. I guess it'd be uh, afternoon dinner, right? No. I, it's breakfast. No, yeah. It it's makes, breakfast. It's, start, it's five hours after midnight. Yeah. It's five in the morning, so right. it's five hours later. Right, right, right. Okay, so, and then he says, um, that the thing I don't feel happy about, now that it's over, now that they're both out of danger, I feel I should feel great about, um, and I just don't. I'm like, okay, what's this? <laughs> and then a little, the next paragraph down, <clears throat> you're just wrought up some, that's all. You're still shocked at the bad time you had last night. Almost losing Helen, okay, and all. Naturally, you wouldn't want uh, that. You wouldn't You wouldn't be yourself right away. Okay, so I'm pretty sure, like, this is all evidence pointing to just standard, you know, vaginal birth or whatever. It's just there's some sort of uh, difficulty in, in this baby being born. But then the father says, um, you're not the first man to experience labor. And then he says, you're not even the first billion. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Now, I've never had a kid, Eric. Maybe you had sympathetic labor pains or something when your wife was pregnant and having babies. Um... But am I reading this wrong? Is this a, is this a, something that was going on in the fifties that I don't know about, or am I in another dimension where that happens commonly? Yeah, no, I don't think when it said experience labor, that meant ha- do have labor. Right. I, I was thinking like yeah. maybe I mean, he gave the, birth the, here. Let's face it, he experiences a sunrise when he comes out of the hospital. Yeah. Which should be, after all, a uh, a positive, objective correlative, right? The the world is getting lighter, mm-hmm. right? Um, he experiences the sunrise. That doesn't mean that he's the sun and he's rising. Right. I, that's how I took. You, you're not the first man to experience labor. Meant you are fully engaged in it emotionally and as an observer. 
That's what I thought. But I still think that I can see reasons to call this a science fiction story. In the middle, mm -hmm. we have this discussion about the atom bomb. Yep. And this is 1953. So we have had the atom bomb just end a war um, eight years earlier. And we are at the very tail end of the Korean War. I can tell you, because I remember being this age, um, I was born in 46. I can remember uh, in that summer, <clears throat> standing around the radio at the, the neighborhood pool, listening to the news. This was particularly true in 56 and 57 with uh, the Hungarian Revolution and other things going on. But even in 53, listening to the news because we were about 80 miles north of New York City and we knew that New York City was going to be a target. Mm -hmm. So if anything went wrong, there was going to be bombing and it was going to be atomic bombing. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly, this is supposed to be in the air because when Senior Crosby says, OK, it wasn't that. Well, then I know what it is. You're worried about the state of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's not the common way of looking at things in 53. So there is more about the technology doing something. Mm -hmm. But I would like to suggest that the story still becomes very slippery in a way because it doesn't let us know about the meaning of technology. That it is a story that asks us to consider whether or not the nature of technology should influence our behavior as human beings. That, I think, is what can, one can arguably say makes it a science fiction story. Absolutely. And and so so well, if I may, this yep. is there is a framing going on here. You see, in the middle of this, we have the atomic bomb. Right? We have the Russians, we have the possible war, and we have the argument that don't worry, the big dome guy isn't going to do it because he doesn't want the world to become a piece of burnt toast. Right. So it's mutually assured destruction. It is, in fact, the, the policy that kept us simultaneously at war and not at war for decades called the Cold War. Now, at either end of this story, there is a different technology. It is the automobile. Mm -hmm. The first page, he hears the automobile coming up. Uh, they talk about how good it is to drive on an empty road. Uh, Jack says his father had a heavy, has a heavy foot. I mean, there's a lot of detail about the car. And then he gets into the car to take them for breakfast. And at the end, he says, let's get back into the car. I want to see the boy. Mm -hmm. So this central technological image, uh, emblem of modern technology, the atomic bomb, which none of us get to see. Right. Or, or those who do die, right, is inside this other modern technology that gets to replace humanity. Mm -hmm. He doesn't hear his father coming up the road. He hears the car coming up the road. People supplant cars. Now, what kind of a person is this father? He's a guy who, now that he's retired, really likes to hunt and fish. Mm-hmm. And I used to fish at one point in my life. I never was a hunter. But my impression is that those are not aerobic exercises. Mm -hmm. So when he says, you know, he, he really needs to keep his strength up, I don't know what he's doing with hunting and fishing. But I do know that it's being treated here as if it were a violent act. And yeah. it is a violent act. Yeah. So here's a man who loves to drive cars, too, 
can be technologies of violence. Mm -hmm. The Great Gatsby is loaded with them, you know, the great American novel. Mm -hmm. So what I what I see here is that in the middle we have the atomic bomb and we don't know whether it's good or bad, but sure, it's not good to use it. And around it, we have the car, which we're not told is bad, but come to think of it, it supports a life of violence. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I would take it that like um, on the beach, Neville Shute's novel, mm -hmm. um, this is, it's not the atom bomb that makes it science fiction. It's that we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a human being if we are going to be embraced, embracing and, and, and inventing ever more potent technologies? That's, that's why I think it's slippery. Because mm -hmm. after all, there's no, there's no technology in here that didn't exist in 1953. But it's being handled in such a way that the fundamental question is, what will we make of ourselves as human beings in the future if we continue developing technology? Should this be the last baby? And so in a way, what Purdy, I think, is suggesting is 1953, this nice, comfortable Eisenhower era may actually be the beginning of the end of the world. That's exactly. It's like the title, e even if you read it as a straight up just, you know. Um, I, I read the father here as as sort of the Ken Purdy stand-in, given that he's got the lead foot and he's he's um, uh, the right age to be the father rather than the son here, who's only thirty six. Uh, you know, Ken Purdy is writing about World War II. Um, people his uh, who could have been his son's age would have been fighting in World War II. Um, it, we get a story about uh, the son being on the Saratoga. Uh, he calls it the Sarah, and uh, his friend, um, who's killed at Rabaul. You know, this is these are Pacific battles. Um, we've got we've got the the killing of the uh, of the what is it two cocks and a hen. Mm -hmm. um, presumably, he's not he's not out there with a spear. Right? He's out there with a shotgun, is my guess. And yep. his his uh, buddy, he's got a brand new dog that just spent uh, time chasing rabbits instead of catching uh, a game or fowl. Um, we've got all that food stuff, as you point out, keeping the strength up, the labor, and then we've we've got this story about how this guy, this kid, and we, I'm calling him a kid. He's 36, um, a war veteran, uh, worried about his wife Helen, another iconic name, right? Yep. Who never appears in the story, although there's an illustration of her holding the baby. Presumably that's her, holding the baby. And I'm like, w w what is the point of this story? I I'm thinking this is like, uh, kind of like a real experience that a lot of men have had. You know, they go to the hospital, they're not in the room doing the labor, right? They're maybe nearby, um, and they're stressing out about it because they're just hearing about it. They're maybe calling in their dads late at night and saying, I'm at the hospital now. Um, it's not looking good. I'm worried about losing my wife uh, and maybe my my baby. Um, come to the hospital. <laughs> Something sort of thing like that, right? And then he does. He drives there and he takes him to breakfast and he tells him of how his hunting trip went and he enjoys how much he enjoys hunting. Get this food inside of you. All of that stuff. But then we we're ended with the end and it's the last baby. We're told that he wanted to have five children. 
He wanted to have five kids. That's what he wanted to do after World War One, or after World War Two. He just wanted to get home, marry Helen, and have five kids. But this is the last baby. Well, of course, now, and this would be quite apparent to a contemporary reader, he may have felt that when he came back from World War Two. Mm-hmm. But between then and the publication of this story, the Soviets had also developed atomic weapons. So it wasn't just this magic thing that ended a war. Right. It was now something that upped the odds uh, of having global disaster. And we were just at the end of the Korean War when had the United States not shown restraint by not for pushing further into China. Right. Um, there might well have been an atomic exchange yeah, then as MacArthur well. MacArthur was talking about using nukes on, on the Chinese because yep. of the, uh, you know, their involvement in the war. And uh, it, it, it was, I mean, I grew up in the 80s and they, we had the same stuff where you would hear things that make you think, oh my God, how far away from the blast zone do I need to survive? Can I, can I survive? We had, we had, in fact, there is a science fiction TV movie that greatly influenced uh, Ronald Reagan to uh, make a meeting with the Soviets and do some peace talks. It was a, a you know post-apocalyptic, you know, a post uh, what 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 is going to be like to survive a nuclear war? And it was a horror movie, right? A TV movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is definitely the, in the air and it makes people consider, reconsider things, but there's also this weird relationship to technology that you're, you're pointing out to, you know, this, that slipperiness, um, the way the father talks about, about the relationship they have to this technology is, um, I'll just read this section here. He says, um, You've been wondering if a man has a right to bring another baby into this world. It's all fouled up with the atom bomb and the Russians and us making faces at each other. So I I assume that's the United States making faces at Russia and Russia making faces at the United States. And he's saying us, right? As in, as if he is doing it and the son is doing it. But they're also sitting across a table from each other. And that's not probably what they're doing, right? So Uh there's that slipperiness there, but then we get this. Um, And people shooting each other up in places you can't pronounce. Well, he he went to those places he couldn't pronounce the sun, right? Yeah. And he knows how to pronounce them now because that's where his friends have died. And then, just like they always have, and everybody, when some big big dome joker... in a white coat. He's not talking about the politicians. He's talking about the scientists, right? yep. the engineers. And he's a joker, right? In a white coat. Will press the wrong button and blow the whole thing into a cinder. That's what's got you down. Yeah, I got him worried, right? And then he says, um, I remember Shorty McDonald. He was the... He was on the Sarah with me, a good guy. He used to talk like that. Uh, he was never going to have any kids, he said. He said the human race should resign and let the insects take a crack at running the world. That is very science fictional right there. Um, and then the father says, I wonder what he'd say now. And then the son says, he isn't around anymore. So it did end for him, right? 
It did. His whole line ended, right? There's no kids for that guy. And then the old man sighed philosophically. This is not the first time we get a philosophical sigh. The very first time is on the first page, where Jack Crosby walked down the long hospital corridor towards the door. He was very tired, and he was all, all he could think about. He was tired right down to the floor. He let the hospital door sigh quietly shut behind him. So it's right there, too. And then that other description of these guys who are running things that we don't know anything about, Mm-hmm. He says, sure, and now, and now just because a few long hairs have discovered that uranium or balonium, right, get it, right. or get whatever it. that makes noise, that more noise than TNT, something almost everybody could grasp, right, TNT, you're ready to quit and yeah. resign from the human race. And uh, I'm saying is this like a... Sp- Space race or a nuclear arms race? Um, what is that kid for, if not for more cannon fi- fi- fodder, right? Um, except running to seize that cannon is different than you can't run and seize a nuclear bomb falling from the sky, right? There's, there's this relationship almost of despair to what humans can do in the face of technology they can't understand only long hairs and big domes right these guys who are not like us jokers who are studying balonium and then where the the kid says where do you get this dope dad the secret that he knows right and the father says i got it from right up here in you know taps on his head or whatever and says I got it from my own inner knowledge which is no help to me at all <laughs> I know that the world won't end from a nuclear war because I, I know it in my, in my brain and that's, that's one of the reasons that I think it's, it's important to read this story at least in some sense as a critique of science and a critique of technology what we have here is a an apparently warm, uh, strong relationship between a father and a son. Uh-huh. And the father is saying there's nothing better in life than to be able to say, I have a son. And he's saying that to his own son. Right. So we have this generational process implicit in all that's going on. Um, there are three characters in this book, next to me in this story. There's the older Crosby and there's the younger Crosby. And there is Helen. Now, what do we discover? What is it that the old man, the older Crosby, wants to do? He goes out and he's in competition with old Martin's son. Mm-hmm. Right? Old Martin's son gets distracted by a dog that goes after a rabbit. Okay? A rabbit's trail. Mm-hmm. Rabbits are traditional symbols for females, like the Playboy bunny that... Mm-hmm. Purdy is going to be writing for, like the the word Coney, as in Coney Island, um, a place with lots of rabbits, and Coney being slang for for a woman's privates. Um, so while Martin's son is out there distracted by the rabbit trail, our guy, the older Jack, kills two cocks and a hen. Mm-hmm. 
two males and a female, mm -hmm. the entire cast of this story. And his response is the very next line. His response to this event is can't think when I had myself enjoyed myself more. Mm -hmm. So the fact of the matter is that where the knowledge that the world won't end comes from is exactly the place where the motivations that may make the world end come from. Mm -hmm. This is a story that's deeply ambiguous about technology and science, but I think it also asks us to pause and say, wait a minute, what are we doing by using these things? And the answer will take us, perhaps, since technology continues to evolve, as it was in 53, the rest of our lives. In other words, there will always be more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.